A god walking mortal earth trails blood. Hello, and welcome to the Legendary Green Team's Malazan series. Welcome to episode three of the Dead House Gate series. If you haven't listened to our previous episodes, go back and listen, and then come back. I am Huron Fan, and I am joined today by Befuddled Panda. Hello. Yasna as a boy. Hi, everyone. And Ashaman. Hi, hi. As a reminder, this is Befuddled Panda's first time reading Deadhouse Gates. Yasna has read Deadhouse Gates previously and is reading the series for the first time. And Ashman and myself are Malazan veterans. Today, we are covering Deadhouse Gates chapters 12 through 19. If you haven't read these chapters, please stop listening here, as everything in these chapters is fair game for discussion, so spoilers galore. If you haven't read the chapters and wish to continue listening, note there is content warning for violence. As we go chapter by chapter, we will discuss the following. What characters and scenes stood out to you? Any favorite lines from the chapter? Any questions or speculations in the chapter to bring up with the group? So, uh, this week, Ashamon is going to read our summaries because he wrote them. Going to take it for chapter 12? Absolutely. The chain of dogs are in their worst condition yet, with the tribal war leader all too good at raiding them where it hurts most. Dwicker is forced to participate in an excursion attempting to kill said war leader, only to find out he's been possessed by a corrupted earth spirit. Felicin and co. make it to the shelter of a buried city with a tragic past. Kalam learns Manala's backstory as they continue their journey through the Imperial Warren. Pearl and Lostara make a short detour to aid in the aforementioned raid. All right, so uh, let's start with first one. Any scenes or uh, characters that stood out? Fanny, you want to take it first? Uh, sure, I can. So there are two characters that I really enjoyed, but one of them I did not get enough of. So the first one is Haboric um, and his ghost hands. I love the part where <laughs> he boosts Culp up to get through the hole in the ceiling. And it's it's actually <laughs> kind of, um, it's funny, but at the same time, you're also like, ugh, because Felison just like went through all this pain to climb up this pillar. And this whole entire time, Habora could have just helped give her a boost. <laughs> she wouldn't have to. She wouldn't have to bleed. Um, and then the second one, the second character, um, is Apt. When Apt came th- from the Warren and saved Pearl and Lestera, and I just I did not get enough out of Apt. I like Apt a lot. Yeah. App just is saving everyone left and right in this book. I know. No thanks needed. She just does it. She's a good mm-hmm. mother. Mm-hmm. She is. Ash, how about you? Any scenes or uh, characters? I really liked the bit where they were exploring the city. Uh, Felicin and Hiboric and Culp. Uh, you get a really good sense of... Well, okay, there's a lot of exploring ancient cities and ancient battlegrounds in this book. Um, and this one was my second favorite of their cities because it gives you some interesting backstory on the soul taken divers um, as well as just like a sad occurrence that had happened millennia past and it's kind of spooky how war can just you know tell everyone all this stuff which you know it's not stuff really shouldn't know. yeah stuff he shouldn't know how is he doing this mm. A lot of lore. 
A lot mm-hmm. of lore. A lot of lore. I think this is the first incident of shapeshifters in the world, but I'm not sure. Hmm. Uh, yes, sir? I really liked um, how it bookended the chapter with the same fight scene from two different perspectives, and you get Dewicker's, uh perspective on the fight scene, not knowing what happens with Lestarl, Yell, and uh, mm-hmm. Pearl. and uh, Pearl, even though it's like hinted at, um, uh, and and that the mission seems more of a total failure in the first viewpoint, and then in the second viewpoint, you find out that the uh, that the Semp God or whatever the the fragment of the Semp God is like severely weakened by the interference of Apt. Mm-hmm. That whole thing with the Sempt God is still confusing to me. Like mm-hmm. I, I get it because I've read it a few times, but yeah, it's it's not uh, clear. <laughs> well, I had the question to um, Ash when he wrote the summary. I was like, wait, the Semp Ascendant was an Earth spirit, but then Ash, you clarified that n- not quite. Yeah. Uh, so basically, when the Earth spirits were eating the Semp God. There was a part of it that was so malevolent that when consumed, corrupted the Earth spirit entirely and made it go crazy. Which is how the raids were so effective because they were using the Earth spirits to detect when raids were happening and stuff. Um, But the Earth spirits didn't know that one of their own was the source of this. So, And then the Earth spirit was the one that possessed the war leader. Which yeah, I also didn't quite understand the whole possession. Uh, I don't exactly know why it possessed the guy. I think it's just like a a leftover habit of the Semp God because it, mm. it did that to its worshippers. Oh, I it, see. Yeah, and like what a horrifying image too of having just like this guy, his entire body has been sewn shut. Yep all all the orifices. Mm-hmm. Can't let it out. So I liked, uh, I really liked two parts. I liked, uh, we learned about Talk the Younger, <laughs> learning with Dewiker. And he's like a little snot, snot-nosed little kid who ended up teaching Dewiker. It was a little snod. And then I liked the um, the part with Kalam. And uh, he learned about Manala's past. And uh, he learned that he and Manala are quite a bit alike and how they... Uh, they both define themselves by how they protect other people. And then uh, Kalam learning about uh, her former husband, and he's like, hey, Hood, if you want to spit him back out, I'll... I'll, I'll kill him I'll, again. I'll do some... <laughs> I'll do some I'll, I'll, I won't make his death very quick. Mm-hmm. That was sweet. <laughs> <laughs> how romantic, eh? I mean, it's... The the tension between Manala and Kalam is much more believable for me. Than uh, some of the romance in book one. Mm-hmm. Yep. There were a few decent romances I felt in this part. The the most notable one, in my opinion, being the uh, Dewicker and Kalam. Uh, uh, Dewicker and not Kalam. Um, the oh, main the Marine. Marine. Yeah. <laughs> I liked her. Um, I'm going to ride you, old man. <laughs> Until you beg. That's that's (laughs) what you want to hear in the middle of a battle. (laughs) 
Um, so should we go into quotes? Because I think all of us probably have the same one. Probably. I, I have many. Um, so in a conversation between Lowell and Duvicker, I, I really like Captain Lowell in these chapters, by the way. But Lowell said, uh, children are dying. Lowell nodded. That's a, that's a succinct summary of humankind, I'd say. Who needs tomes and volumes of history? Children are dying. The injustices of the world hide in those three words. Quote me, Duvicker, and your work's done. That's kind of what this book is about, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, this is the, probably, the, I think, the second most quoted uh, line from the series. Oh, would you wow. agree with that, Ash? I would say either it's the, yeah, if it's not the second, it's the first. I can see why it's so quoted. It's very impactful. It's succinct. At itself, it is succinct. Um, yeah, and it really does, like, hit home. Uh, Yasmin, you want to give us a quote or two? Sure. So, um, this is the uh, the sappers talking after the uh, fight scene in in the um, in the in the camp, uh, the enemy camp. Sarge took an arrow," said the other sapper. His lungs bleeding. Just one of them, and it's a pr- pinprick. The sergeant corrected, pausing to spit. The other one's fine. Can't breathe blood, Sarge. I shared a t- tent with you, lad. I've breathed worse. Right from children are dying to... <laughs> <laughs> Slide ahead. Jokes. Yeah. <laughs> Ash, do you have some? Yes. Yes. Um, okay. From a discussion with Nil. The Malazan professional soldier is the deadliest weapon I know. Had Coltane three armies instead of only three-fifths of one, he would end this rebellion before year's end, and with such finality that seven cities would never rise again. We could shatter Camus Rillo now, if not for the refugees whom we are sworn to protect. And yeah, we discussed that a little bit before, but uh, yeah, Coltane, had, if he just abandoned the refugees, he could pretty easily destroy Camus Rillo. Um, and I, I like bits like this because people really start noticing that there's something different about the Malazans. They're, they're special in a way. Um, and, it, and it's said later that what makes them so dangerous is that they're allowed to think. Um, and yeah, like Malazan soldiers, they're kind of just ordinary people, but they're given leeway to live up to their potential. They're, they're, they're trusted in a way that a lot of soldiers aren't. And I think this kind of speaks to something about humans in general. Um, if you expect little of some, someone, you're going to get little. But if you actually let them prove themselves to you, then oftentimes I think you'll be surprised. I like that. I kind of had a, a little different take on this, um, this passage. Um, I read it as a little more grim like if you keep thinking about the if only you could get into a really dangerous spiral like if only coltane didn't have these refugees right like the how different things would be how many lives from the malazan side could be saved um so 
and I do also wonder, like, you know, how the refugees are feeling. We don't get that much of a glimpse into the refugees themselves. We get a lot from the no- the nobles, but not from anybody else really, except for maybe the servants a little bit. But I do wonder, like, you know, for somebody who has gone through miles and miles of desert and seen loved ones, people that they've been with just die here, there, like how they're feeling. And um, I did, you know, I kind of wonder like why Erickson didn't write from that, more from that point of view, but it'd probably be way, way darker <laughs> and uh, yeah, more depressing. Yeah, yeah. You get like a little bit of it as Dewicker is walking mm-hmm. through the train, but yeah, like it, it would be pretty rough, I think, if we got more of it. Yeah, it's more that you get it, but it's more distance. So mm-hmm. I prefer the way that you're you're <laughs> viewing that passage. <laughs> well, if you wrote it that way, uh, it would definitely be interesting and like show like sort of like the everyman's take on the whole thing. But if that was the only way he wrote it, uh, like if that's all we got instead of Dewaker's point of view, we got like some random refugee's point of view. It would be like all this stuff like happening to you. With no insight into like Coltane's motives or like the bat the overall strategy or the way the sappers are, you know, interacting with the rest of the troops and that kind of thing. Like it would be like almost like this being like prodded at blindly by all these different forces that you would have no means to like understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wonder if it was a very conscious choice from him to not r- have any characters specifically f- like POV specifically from that. Um, Panda, did you have any quotes that stood out? I did have a few. Um, there's one where it says, the lesson of history is that no one learns. And Dewiker says that. And it's just so true. And Erickson writes it in a way that's not the cliche way of, oh, history repeats itself. Um, so I really like that. And then uh, another quote also from Dwicker is, I shall dutifully record them in my list of the fallen. And that was, that's the first time, I believe, that we've seen the, the it's like the titular um, mm. phrase. And I thought that was fun because it was also metaphorical because he was talking about noting the, the dead in his list, right? Um, and he has a corporal with him whose name is List. So he has this like, I don't know, this person who's a List that he's, that's basically his shadow. He's following around everywhere. Um, and then he has this other List. Yeah, I just thought that was fun. So later, that brings up a an interesting point, and I'll forget if I don't bring it up now, but later on, he talks about how he stops recording the list of the fallen is list with him when he when he says that or is list not with him oh. at that point. I don't know. Good question. Yeah, because list was injured for, and uh, not with him for a while. Mm-hmm. And that passage where he decides not to write the list is so beautiful, but I don't know if I put it as a favorite quote because it's really long. And it I think I did. Long to read. Yeah, I did. It's in the next chapter. <laughs> oh, great. Okay, cool. I need to stop pulling well. back from that then. <laughs> 
just put it put it in. I I yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> Any questions for this chapter? Or uh, I, have, speculations? I have one more quote at least that I would like to share. Okay. Hit it. No one who's grown up admits scroll, scrolls and books can write of the world. Kellen Vat had told him once, which is why I'm appointing you imperial historian, soldier. Emperor, I cannot read or write. An unsullied mind. Good. <laughs> uh, for questions, uh, so we find out in this chapter that uh, the undead dragon was a Talani mass bonecaster, I think from Bork. Uh, and last episode, we were told that, uh, we told by Hiran that we've heard the name of the dragon before. So my my first guess, and I'd have to go back through gardens in the first chunk of Deadhouse Gates to see if I have other guesses. My first guess is Pranchol. Okay. Oh man, uh, I do don't Do you have remember. a guess, Panda, <laughs> of, of what other Talani mass bone casters that might be that we've heard the name of? Oh, that's the one where Tattersail was reborn. Yeah, he gave birth to, yeah, he gave birth to her. Okay. I'm not, sure yeah. we, I'm not sure we have many others named, but uh, we also might have heard the name of a dragon or a person and not known they were a Talani Mass Bonecaster. So this may be something we're just completely not going to ever get in a million years. And I'm here smiling. smile reveals nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with what Yesna said because he put more thought into it than I did. I like it. It's, a, it's an excellent uh, speculation. It is certainly speculation. Oh, and um, uh, sorry, I had a couple more comments before we move on to chapter 13 or other people's have questions. Uh, I just wanted to point out that Kalam was pissed at Quickbin because he kept him in the dark about the portal zone, but then like, he continuously keeps his companions in the dark the same way Quickbin does, about, yes. uh, especially about the like soul taken and divers and uh, about like what the Imperial Warren is and what his suspicions of of what it is are, uh, yep, and apt. And also, um, I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen the movie M by Fritz Long, but uh, yeah, so, this, so the scene where Habork is like walking through the city and he's like blind, but he sees everything more clearly than everyone else, like was really reminiscent. I like watched M like right before I read that and uh, in M, there's a scene where a blind character sees something that nobody else could have, and it just immediately made me think of that. And I'm wondering, uh, here's a question I'd have for Erickson: If uh, M by Fritz Long inf influenced that uh, that sequence at all? Great movie. Is it? It, is. it must be an older film, right? I think it's like it's from the 1920s. It's one of the first oh, talkies. Okay. Oh, okay. I have. I had never heard of it. Oh, I'll go check it out. Okay, so there was a uh, a conversation between Duiker, Lol, and Sormo, and um, basically, they Coltane's train had been going through the desert, and they've been thirsty, right? They've been um, basically dying of thirst, and then there's this tunnel, and then. Uh, Duiker notices that there's water in the tunnel and Sormo goes, once Duiker brings it up, Sormo goes, for lack of asking the right questions, we have suffered long and needlessly. And that was just 
ah, you know, again, it's going back to the if only like they had thought of it, if they had asked the question, if they had tried, right? So many people could have been saved and it impacted me quite a bit. Um, so I do, I do wonder if like there are other moments and like what Erickson is trying to say with this passage, like, I, I don't know. Um, and the other thing is Coltane's train. I was, it was uh, bugging me that I was like, there's something familiar about this story. And it finally hit me. Um, it reminds me of Moses leading the Israelites um, across the desert out of Egypt. And there's even like a direct parallel of like crossing the Red Sea, except, you know, they, they had built a bridge. Well, the sappers built a bridge. Um, but also Moses and um, they, like he made water come out of a rock to, you know, for the people. So there's just some parallels. And I do wonder if um, it was intentional on Erickson's part. I think it was. Yeah. Uh, I, I noticed that too. Yeah, because like when we were reading about the the bridge part, like how the refugees would cross uh, the first river last episode, I, I don't know why I didn't connect, but like I thought it would be something similar, like somehow the mages parted the water. <laughs> But nope, they built a bridge. That was that was pretty cool. And then the people who tried to follow them were immediately killed. Yes. <laughs> yep. Similarly. Yeah. Yeah. I, it has to be on purpose. Yeah, I think so. Um. Oh, okay. There's another piece where Captain Lull says, "A part of him will know if his efforts are mediocre. We're likely to let him live. If he shows us brilliance, we'll kill him." And he's talking about the Sem warlord and this just reminds me of in gardens when Paran was told to keep his head down and not be noticed by the gods and my question is like what do you think Erickson's take on exceptionalism is because there's this theme of like keep your head down you don't want to get noticed and even later on you know when people get <laughs> when people like are getting promoted or demoted there's this mm. theme <laughs> um a few of the later books uh, really uh are about exceptionalism and, okay uh, it's an impact on a culture and i'll just say that okay so it's a read and find out kind of thing yeah i mean you're welcome to interpret however you want right great thank you for that panda Chapter 13? Chapter 13. Take it. The chain of dogs cross their second river, winning another impossible victory as they do. Kalam and his companions exit the Imperial Warren, having arrived in Aaron at last. Kalam then finds a captain willing to take him aboard his ship. Apparently, he has been expected. Manala decides to leave Kaneb and the children to pursue Kalam. So, um, I will start with my favorite uh, characters or scenes. Um, we already talked about it, but the the, the thing between Duiker and the the unnamed marine was great. Mm -hmm. But I really like the scene where uh, Duiker finds the servant who's being punished by uh, the the Lenestro, the noble, and uh, 
List is such a good wingman for him, and he's he's telling him off. He's like, man, if <laughs> uh, Nestor's not scared of Dewiker, and List is like, man, it, this guy was gonna kill you if you don't do this. What? I don't know what I'm trying to say. What I'm saying is List is great in that scene, and I love the way that Duker, Duiker interacts with the nobles. Do you have a quote from that section? Uh, I I have a quote where so that, that that's the scene where the what's his name? Roach. Roach uh steals Bent steals Roach. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So Yeah, because Roach is a Roach Hunter dog. Roach it's hunter, like a right. dog bred to hunt roaches. Uh, <laughs> The, the quote was, uh, a dog that eats cockroaches? Rare. I assumed it was raw. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I <laughs> like how in the start of the book, we see a slaughter of nobles, and it, it seems horrifying to us. And in later on in the book, the nobles have been nothing but a pain in the... They've been nothing but a pain. Tom, what's okay? Tumlet's okay. Tumlet's fine. And one might assume that there are more nobles that are fine, but man, it really does not make you sympathetic to them. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, you yep. can really see why the crowds in the in, in the cities that were tearing apart nobles did what they did. Because if nobles are like this all over the empire, then who's to say I wouldn't be the same way, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. He, he does not paint them in a good light. No. I mean, he he brings balance, right? There's the, you know, you feel sympathy based on how he's portrayed something, but then you get the other side of it as well. Mm-hmm. Pulls no bunches. Um, Yasna, do you have any uh, scenes or characters? Sure. Uh, so I had that same one written as Duiker standing up to noble scum. But also arranging the permanent conscription of the servants, which was that awesome. Was great. And then I have warlocks being metal as hell, which is like the, the <laughs> horse thing, and uh, and the and the sappers being awesome. Uh, what does a sea turtle do in winter? Uh, yeah, all that stuff was great. It's a great chapter. You could say the sappers being awesome for almost every single one of these chapters. <laughs> I pretty much do. I I love the sappers in this. In this uh, book, they're amazing. Brenda, how about you? Yeah, I noticed some of the same things. The things that I noted that are different are um, the the imagery that Erickson gives for describing the seventh infantry, infantry against the quote unquote jaw of the enemy. Um, it you know the hollow box that like extends into an oval and then retracts. And it was just very, uh, I don't know, it, it really paints a picture in my mind. It was almost like I was watching a movie, you know, whether it's something like Gladiator or something. Um, and then that's probably the wrong movie. Braveheart. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking of. Um, yeah, okay. That, that was that. And then um, the Wiccans announcing themselves in that battle by launching severed heads through the air before them. That, I think that was the Weasel Clan, right? I Yes. Uh, I believe you're right. And that was just OMFG. <laughs> was that the same announcement that 
uh, came with like the cattle dogs charging ahead of the cavalry and like taking yeah. riders off their horses. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, yeah. I know it's probably not <laughs> right, but whenever I picture a cattle dog, I kind of like think of a Rottweiler that's a bit mangier. And I am terrified on behalf of whoever has to be in the receiving end of that. Yes. Wiccans are demons. Wiccans are demons. Mm. They're dogs, too. Yeah. Uh, how about Ash? Did you have anything? I liked the battle scene. It was good. Um, <laughs> Thank you for that. I, I'm I'm curious as to whether the maneuver with the sappers was planned at all, or if the sappers kind of took it upon themselves to do it themselves. I don't know. Okay, they are crazy. They are crazy, they, and they are the thing so they crazy. did was insane. Yes, I was like, couldn't you have thought of a different way? But I, I don't know. I mean, what they so, did was pretty pretty effective. It's it, true. Like, they broke so many boats. Like, you know, probably several of them died during that just because the horse is crushing them. Yeah. Uh, it, it gave me very... Uh, when it, it gave me the same vibes as whenever the Rohirrim charge in the Lord of the Rings movies. And you mm. just see them just breaking through the enemies. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I thought it was really cool imagery. And I liked how Erickson provided a way for the uh, cavalry to succeed without making it seem like the enemies were incompetent because you know what you do against the cavalry mm -hmm. charge you just stick spears in them and you're fine um, yeah this is if you can't stick spears in them if you are uh, disintegrated with grenades if you're not there yeah yeah <laughs> it's pretty clear at this point that there have at least been a few battles where there had to have been some pretty strong coordination between like the seventh the wakens and the sappers but since the sappers don't show up to the staff meetings like <laughs> i imagine it's not just like coltane going hey duiker go tell the sappers this like they have to be a little more coordinated than that when does that ever happen like how when I, do I, when do the meetings happen where where sure coltane and the sappers get on the same page what I, I i think the sappers take it upon themselves a lot of the times to do things that make sense to them um, filling holes in plans and such. Because uh, la later on, we uh, we see Dwicker actually carrying some orders to Sappers, and they were already going to do what he was going <laughs> to order them to do. <laughs> sure, but the uh, the building of the bridge, like, Coltane knew about that ahead of time. So yeah, building of the bridge. All... Yeah. yeah but that, like... that, that, was, that was the Sappers in conjunction with, like, stonemasons and, and people like that. Got it. That's a good point, and I do wonder if it's going back to the quote that we talked about in the previous chapter, how the Malazan professional soldiers are the deadliest weapon because, like, they are given autonomy. Um, it could be part of that, but you're right, Yasna, there has to be some sort of coordination. I'm wondering if Sormo um, has ways to help facilitate that's my I don't guess. think Sormo understands the sappers any more than anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a quote that's like, even the sappers may not understand themselves. Yep. <laughs> um, there, there was one thing I forgot to mention. Um, the, there was in this chapter uh, a little cross-cultural misunderstanding between the, the Wiccans and the refugees. The refugees oh, yeah. hate the Wiccans because they think that they they deride them and they have contempt for them 
but in reality, Duiker understands the Wiccans, and it's like it's really that they uh, they don't want to do disservice to the sacrifice by talking about it, and it just felt really real and uh, raw. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, that's right to me too. One of my quotes. Should we move on to quotes then? Sure. Okay, uh, Panda, you take it. Yeah, basically what you were talking about, um, the Weasel Clan use the refugees as bait. Um, Oh, this is, sorry, this is my summary here. The Weasel Clan used the refugees as bait and hundreds of them died. The the Wiccan, oh no, wait, this is the quote, sorry, sorry, this is the quote. The Weasel (laughs) Clan... The Weasel Clan used the refugees as bait, and hundreds of them died. The Wiccans remained silent and did not offer any excuses. The Weasel Clan had, however, offered yet another salute to those refugees who had died, with the slaughter of the Tithansi archers in the basin added to the Weasel Clan's actions. An entire Plains tribe had effectively ceased to exist. The Wiccans' retribution had been absolute. Yeah. Um, and then some of my other quotes were, um, it was Nil and Nether and the mare and, uh, the, the horses in these books, man. Yeah, that one was bad. (laughs) (laughs) Life forces were powerful, almost beyond comprehension, and the sacrifice of one animal to gift close to 5,000 others with appalling strength and force of will was on the face of it worthy and notable. If not for a dumb beast's incomprehension at its own destruction beneath the loving hands of two heartbroken children. Ah. Um, and Erickson just deals with the question of like, you know, sacrificing a few to save the many so vividly, like in such a impactful way yeah and the the wiccans love their horses they're a horse culture and uh it it makes it all the more powerful Mm -hmm. shall shall i shall i read the one about the list Mm -hmm. okay sorry this one's long but it's really good (laughs) this is dewey his thoughts felt fevered spinning around in a rational terror of of knowledge of the details that remind one of humanity Names to faces are like twin serpents threatening the most painful bite of all. I'll never return to the list of the fallen because I see now that the unnamed soldier is a gift. The named soldier, dead, melted wax, demands a response among the living. A response no one can make. Names are no comfort. They're a call to answer the unanswerable. Why did she die, not him? Why do the survivors remain anonymous as if cursed, while the dead are revered? Why do we cling to what we lose while we ignore what we still hold? Name none of the fallen, for they stood in our place and stand there still in each moment of our lives. Let my death hold no glory, and let me die forgotten and unknown. Let it not be said that I was one among the dead to accuse the living. I don't know if I agree. Why is that? Because if we think back to, like, Kalam, how he didn't, like, one of his fears was helplessness, meaning, like, he is insignificant. And... You know, sometimes the only thing you can leave behind is your name. And, you know, it's, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't think I quite agree. I think it's a noble sentiment of Dewickers. Uh, I, yeah, I think he's not saying that people don't deserve to be remembered. It's just that 
what are you supposed to do if you know okay if, if if the dead are named what are you supposed to do because that demands an answer and no answer can be really given i think it's more of a reminder to the people who come after not necessarily i can see, this is pretty complicated like it could be contributing to survivor's guilt like why is it this person and not me um but it could also be making a more tangible connection like it was a real person and it's not just a number like the the death wasn't just a number oh yeah oh, that's an excellent point <clears throat> yeah i'm i i mean it's a beautifully written passage it's the first time i've just like sent a quote straight to my wife and the first thing she said was that's beautifully written but uh but yeah, uh, uh, Dewiger's pessimism and uh, like I, I understand why he's feeling it and what he's going through and like what he's witnessing and how horrible it is. But he is way more pessimistic than um, than like I think I've ever been in my life, and, and it, it is hard to like put yourself in that situation, uh, it, you know, uh, when you don't feel that 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 pessimism. Even I think that Dewiger, part of why Dewiger is constantly surprised by the successes of the Chain of Dogs is because of how pessimistic he is and how like nihilistic he is throughout a lot of this book. Is he doesn't have like he has no faith in their ability to survive or succeed, and so he's constantly surprised when Coltane pulls another victory out of his out of his hat. I think that's an interesting contrast or comparison, I should say, to. Haboric, because Haboric is also a historian, and Haboric um, knows of Dewiker's work, and he's written his own version of the histories. Um, basically, there there was a later point that I was going to bring up, but I'll just bring it up here. If the histories that Haboric and Dewiker wrote were real like actual real things we could read, I bet there would be like academic papers written to compare mm. the two. <laughs> and I would read those papers. <laughs> I agree. Um, to the point about Dwicker's pessimism, I think I, I, I definitely don't blame him for it. And there's a, there's a little bit of a quote that I would like to share in regards to this. Ah, that rings of Coltane, his well-aimed arrows of fear and uncertainty. He's yet to miss the mark. So long as he does not fail, he cannot fail. The day he slips up, shows imperfection, is the day our heads will roll. And I think both DeWicker and Coltane understand that Coltane isn't perfect. So far he has been, but one mistake by Coltane and everyone's dead. And DeWicker knows too much of history to, uh, to believe anyone is flawless. But the the soldiers of the seventh they don't they don't know that history so they can do the impossible because they uh, they just ha have that faith and I think there is merit to both sides of this. Yeah, it, again, the balance of perspectives. Mm -hmm. Do you think that uh, Heboric and Dweaker could be Erickson and Esselmont? That's a good question. Well, hmm. who's so, who? I I don't think it matters, but I was just thinking so like. 
two authors writing about the same thing or two historians writing about the same thing, yet that they might write things differently based on their perspective. And it might be, I don't know, similar to how Erickson and Elselman are writing books in the same world, but a lot of their, the way that they look at it are different. I don't know. Note that as a question. Karen. Interesting. Uh, this is just before the battle. We go to partake of death. And it is in these moments, before the blades are unsheathed, before blood wets the ground and screams fill the air, that the futility descends upon us all. Without our armor, we would all weep, I think. How else to answer the impending promise of incalculable loss? That's good. Yeah. My emotions. I think there was like another piece uh, right after yours, uh, Ash, where it says the count of losses was a numbing litany, litany to war's futility. Uh, to that's, uh, that's after the battle, I think, yeah. Oh, to, after the battle. To the historian's mind, only Hood himself could smile in triumph. And it's just like, yeah, who, who here really is the winner? Death. All right, go ahead, Asma. And I do want to talk about Hood later on in the episode, but not right now. Uh, so okay. now that we've talked about how horrible war is, let's uh, talk about how awesome it can be, because uh, here's a scene of the Marines being awesome. So it says, they were armed with crossbows and short swords, as well as long swords. They wore black and chain beneath gray leathers. Every third soldier carried a large round shield of thick, soft wood that would be soaked for an hour before battle. These shields were used to catch and hold enemy weapons, ranging from swords to flails. They would be discarded after the first few minutes of a fight, usually studded with an appalling array of edged and spiked iron. This particular tactic of the seventh had proved effective against the Semk and their undisciplined two-handed fighting methods. The Marines called it pulling teeth. And that is the coolest, like, I'm in this movie watching this uh, fight thing ever. And it shows, like, the difference of, like, the sort of, like, technologies and, like, uh, cultures and uh, style of the two armies and, and like the cultures they come from like so vividly. It's so, yeah. so great. I, I really like that because it's not, um, it's not relying on magic, right? Like you're saying, it's relying on the technology. Yeah. Right. It really reminds me of Roman battle tactics and that shouldn't be surprising because th- I'm pretty sure Erickson heavily based the Malazan Empire off of the Romans. Um, they had, it, it's kind of like a reverse tactic. Um, they had a throwing spear called the pilum, and when they threw it and it hit the enemy's shield, it would bend and stick in the shield such that the enemies couldn't use it effectively. Uh-huh. They, they couldn't they couldn't take the javelin out and use it against the Romans, and they also had to get rid of their shields because oh. yeah. And then uh, when they would get in close, the Romans just kind of slaughter them. Um, and that, I think it really highlights just how effective good tactics can be. I I am very happy that I'm not a soldier. <laughs> Are we all? It's 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 fun to play one in a video game, but I sure do die a lot. In video <laughs> <laughs> yeah, should we move on to questions? Great, Panda. Um. Yeah. What was my question? Okay. So this whole chain of dogs thing um i'm not a hundred percent sure i understand it exactly basically they were uh it was captain lull to do du- it they mock our noble born did you know that old man 
They've a name for us in Debrel. You know what it translates into? The chain of dogs. Coltane's chain of dogs. He leads, yet is led. He strains forward, yet is held back. He bears his fangs, yet what what nips at his heels, if not those he is war- sworn to protect. Uh, there's profundity in such names, don't you think? So is it the the refugees or the dogs? Yes. Specific- yeah, most and- specifically the nobles. Got it. Okay. Because you know how much of a pain Nethpara has been. Mm, okay, got it. Okay, that's a lot clearer. Because I wasn't sure if when they were saying they mock our noble-born, if somehow they were also referring to Coltane, but I don't think that that's what it was saying. It is I think they're too the scared actual. of Coltane to mock him. <laughs> <laughs> got it. No, okay, but it's, basic, it's basically saying that, like, that that he he could deal with all this a lot more easily without the refugees and they're they're like a chain like like holding him back and nipping at his heels and and causing him all these problems so i like will yeah i will add one comment take note of when chains are mentioned <laughs> okay now i'm gonna go search the fallen <laughs> pay pay close attention whenever someone mentions chains so i have like just a little comment. It's very little. Poor Lestara Yil. She, uh, she went and got herself arrested and she had no idea of the political situation. What a twist. I yeah. know. Isn't Pornful a tool? I hate Pornful uh, so much. sucks. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, it's, it's, it's so unbelievably frustrating being with Coltane and these refugees who are like fighting against impossible odds, they're um, they're they're dying by the by the hundreds and the thousands, and just a few hundred miles away, Pormqual is actively sabotaging the war effort through his own incompetence and selfishness and selfishness. Yeah, at least that's what it appears like. I don't know. I see. I'm just. I'm just questioning everything. Good. Does Pomkol even exist? Well, some <laughs> somewhere in um, this might have been in the last episode, not this one, but somewhere in the chapters we've already read, uh, one of the rebels says to Kalam that uh, the rebellion considers um, a uh, the just all to be like an asset or like their shaved knuckle in the hole too. So there's that. Mm. But and, um, and in the... Yeah, go ahead. So that thing with uh, Yield getting arrested, she was going to go with uh, Pearl but he didn't know about her arrest so he just figured that she didn't want to, right? Yeah, because he said he'd see her at dawn. Now I, I, I actually did wonder... If he really knew and just kind of let her walk into it, or or if he just was like, "Oh, it's Dawn. She's not here. Dawn." I think uh, based on no, never mind. Nope, not gonna not gonna accidentally do a spoiler this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I almost did the same one. I think you just almost did earlier. Mm-hmm. Shall we move on? Yes. Okay. Hit it, Ash. Chapter fourteen. 
Fellison and company decide to leave the safety of the buried city and quickly run into a merchant who turns out to be Grillin, a divers who can veer into a horde of rats. Culp is killed and Bowden comes to the rescue, buying Fellison and Havoric time to escape. Bowden is mortally injured in the fight and dies in Fellison's arms. Fellison and Havoric make it to the count of camp of Toblaki and Leoman. Toblaki? Toblaki, I think it is. <laughs> I, just, I just I just always pronounce it Toblaki in my head. <laughs> okay. Cool. Toblaki. Wait, that sounds like two black eyes. Sorry. Is that a bad thing? I don't know. <laughs> it is for the person who has them. <laughs> uh yeah, so Culp's dead, Bowden's dead, uh Grillin's scary. And uh yeah. Uh, the... So, sorry. Sorry, go ahead, Justin. Did we ever get confirmation that that is Grillin? Because he uses a different name, which made me think it was a different Rat Divers. No, it's definitely Grillin. Yeah. Okay. Because, uh, well, one one of the pieces of evidence is that uh, Miss Ram is there, and Miss Ram hates Grillin. Oh, I see. You know what? I'm going to nominate myself to start because, <laughs> um, okay. so first, I think it's really sad the story of Miss Ram in this book because it, it he's just kind of like a good guy and he tries to save them from Grillin, uh, but he he can't. He's you know the magic is too strong for him. Um, and I would just like to say that the scene where Bowden is dying in Fellison's arms is heartbreaking, and beautiful and i'm actually mad at fellison in that scene yeah yeah because bowden was trying to get things off his chest right like he was trying to say things to her about tavor about like basically whatever his dying words were, were going to be and fellison to the way that i read that scene fellison didn't want to hear it like she didn't want any excuses to be made for Tavor. And so she just like basically shushed Bowden. And I I got mad at her because I was like, this guy has gone through a lot. I mean, he didn't do it perfectly, right? We we've talked <laughs> about his faults. But he just saved you. And you can't even just like let him have his dying words. That's how I read it. So um yeah. i i think he got what he wanted to say out okay i think really all that he wanted to say was you you were not what i expected um and he's he was trying to say you know what your sister told of me is not what you are does that make sense okay his, his final words were you were not what i expected which mm -hmm. was uh really powerful <laughs> yeah well i don't I guess I don't know if it would become clearer after reading this book what he had expected her to be. Mm. I think he expected her to be a lot softer than she was because okay. what we hear of Melison from Tavor in Gardens of the Moon is that she's too soft for this world. Hmm. And initially she is, but she really toughens up. Got it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So maybe I, I read, read it through the wrong, like with the wrong tone. And maybe he expected her to be nicer as well, not, not so mean the whole time. Um, but yeah, I yeah, 
I think I think wondering what exactly he meant by that is a very fair thing because I don't think Felison really knows either. Okay. I'm less mad at her. <laughs> now. Um well since we're on there, um I just want to say that this is a I want to read a quote that was one of the best in the book in my opinion. So uh earlier uh Hiborik thought to himself, uh God's girl, would I would that I had your armor because she said something just really callous about Culp dying. And she had said to herself, and should I bleed within it, you see nothing, old man. No one shall see, no one shall know. And then she watches uh, Bowden die. And uh, says, armor can hide anything until the moment it falls away. Even a child, especially a child. Yeah. I think it's easy to forget that she's just 15. It's really easy, because, yeah. Grow up real fast when you've experienced so much trauma. Um, back to something funny. Uh, I really like the undead servants <laughs> and how Grilla yeah. interacted. <laughs> okay, so this is... I am impressed by um, Erickson's like strategic timing of levity. Like you there are multiple moments throughout this book where it gets like really deep, really dark, and then all of a sudden, boom, right? There's mm-hmm. some humor to to bring you back up. And it's just I think it's very well done. I also thought it was a great piece of little foreshadowing uh, for what was immediately going to happen because they are all talking about how their deaths were horrific and it mentioned how they all had tiny little wounds on them. Mm. And uh, if they'd only just been paying a bit more attention to the servants, they would have probably realized what was going to happen. Okay, I did not make the connection until you just said that. Me neither. Not three times through. (laughs) That's why Gillen was telling him to shut up. Yep. Oh. Wow. I can't believe I didn't catch that. (laughs) But I do love, I do love the the banter. It's mm. so fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any scenes or uh, quotes, uh, scenes or characters, Yasna? Y'all got my quotes and my scenes and characters, so no. <laughs> That's a good one, right? Uh, yeah. I, think, I think this is probably the crucial point in the book for Felicin as a character, when, when Bowden dies in her arms. Mm, I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think it mentions that there was like a crack in her armor. Yeah, yeah, she thinks to herself. Yeah, within her suddenly cracking, fissure spreading, and beneath it, behind it, something was building. Something was building. Yeah, foreshadowing (laughs) for this chapter. Um, So, do we have any more quotes? Because I want to move on to questions. If we have, Uh, I had, I had one scene where um, it's earlier in the chapter where. Haborik tells Culp and Felicin to tie themselves to him so that they can get down the cliff. And mm. I just had the imagery of Fezzik yep. <laughs> from the Princess Bride climbing the cliffs of insanity. <laughs> Except for a guy a third his size and yeah. age, three times his age. Um, okay, in terms of quotes, 
There's one from Felicen where she says, or I think this is her inner monologue. She she thinks it's the ignorant who find a cause and cling to it, for within that is the illusion of significance. Faith, a king, queen, or emperor, or vengeance. All the bastion of fools. And it's just, she's gotten very cynical. Yeah. (laughs) I like the the bit before that as well. I'll I'll let you finish, but... uh, Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. We do not but scratch the world, frail and fraught. Every vast drama of civilizations, of people with their certainties and gestures, means nothing, affects nothing. Life crawls on, ever on. She wondered if the gift of revelation, of discovering the meaning underlying humanity, offered nothing more than a devastating sense of futility. Uh, and then even, I think even before that, um, Haboric says to Culp, show me a mortal who is not pursued, and I'll show you a corpse. Uh, <laughs> every hunter is hunted. Every mind that knows itself has stalkers. We drive and are driven. The unknown pursues the ignorant. The truth assails every scholar wise enough to know his own ignorance. For that is the meaning of unknowable truths. And it's just like, yeah, it's it's kind of futile because there's always something that's bigger that's pursuing. Yeah. Yeah, this, this series is in many ways a response to nihilism and the futility we feel at the horrors of the world. And... Well, I don't think Felicen has much positive to say on it. I <laughs> I will just say I, I love how Erickson is willing to discuss these things so well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I have a question for Panda. Oh, okay. Were you satisfied with the resurrection of Shaik? So when it was just described as, oh, and then they saw an old man with a young woman. I was like, oh my God, it's totally not Absalar. Um, and, okay, bear with me here. I actually, I do like that it is Felicin and not Absalar. And I think it's because with Absalar, she's had so many different like people or whatever you want to call them beings in her like her memories are not even her own memories she has like memories from various different people with felicin she has always remained her own person um and i think i think shaik noticed that and saw that and was willing which later on they say like she made a deal with Felicin so that Felicin could remain as her own identity. Um, and I think that with Felicin, she was just more of a receptive vessel for Shaikh than Absalar would have been. Cause I think Absalar would have fought it, fought it more. Yeah. I think uh, part of this book, at least we, we don't get Absalar's, POV, but I think she is very much determined to not be used again. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Felicin cares so much as if she's used, so long as she gets what she wants. Right. Or what she thinks she wants. And what she is motivated by, you know, it's the is the the river of blood that she sees in her dreams, the vengeance. 
Uh, and Trijna is much more closely aligned with those kind of motives than whatever Absalom's motives might be. Good point. Yep. I did enjoy the sleight of hand, though. Yeah, it was great misdirection, wasn't it? <laughs> and and when you look, read back, it's it's so obvious that it's going to be Felicin too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Yeah. I don't know that I ever bought that it was going to be Absalar, but I didn't think it was going to be Felicin. So that was still surprising to me. Mm. There, there, uh, there's a little foreshadowing in this book, at least. Wait, so yes, Knight, if you didn't think it was Absalar, who, who else did you have in mind? Or what did you, what did you think would have happened? I don't think I had a clear idea of what was going to happen. Oh, okay. Even if Shaik was going to be, I wasn't, I wasn't even like focused on that. Oh, I, got it. I just okay. was like, I just kind of thought it was BS. <laughs> but I didn't know like what, I didn't have an, a positive idea. I just had like a negative idea of like, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, I, I would like to call our attention to a quote from actually chapter 12. <laughs> in, in, <laughs> in, just in, in relation to the uh, river of blood thing. She thinks, have I captured an echo of hood within me? The god of death must surely dream rivers of blood. Perhaps I have been his all this time. Thus, I am blessed. What do you guys make of that? Oh. She was a, at a very pessimistic point when she thought that they were like wandering through the desert, right? Yeah. I think, I think Hood probably did mark her. Especially like in, in the day uh, when he appeared before her. Um, I think he marked her in her work. And oh. part of why he appeared to work was he wanted like he wanted to show Haboric Felicin and what he was going to do to her or what was going to happen to her, not necessarily because of Hood. I also would just like to say that I think Hood is... He looms over this book in much the same way that Sauron does in Lord of the Rings. Do you know I was like literally just about to say that exact thing? <laughs> is that like one of the most important characters in this book is is Hood, and he's like, after the prologue, once we get to Seven Cities, he's not there physically. He doesn't like manifest that we know of, but like everything from like the ecosystem to the omens people are seeing to the ordeals they're going through to what's looming in their minds, it's like ever present. Like, yeah. Ugh. And you just took the words like right out of my mouth. That's literally <laughs> what I was gonna say. Right, the next thing I was gonna say. <laughs> okay, chapter fifteen. Kalam sails away from Aaron in the company of a mysterious stranger named Salk Ilan, responsible for arranging passage for him. The chain of dogs inducts the servants it purchased from the nobles into the seventh. Felicin and Haborik journey with Leoman into Lock. Toblakai to Shaikh's oasis. Felicin determined to be named Shaikh Reborn. Fiddler and co. make their way through an ancient city destroyed at the hand of Icarium. I love this chapter. It has mm -hmm. so many good thing, good scenes. Uh, Yasni, want to go first? Sure. Uh, the initiation of the servants into the seventh, like that, choked me up with tears this last time through, and probably every other time, but this time I just like. Ugh. I could I couldn't talk I couldn't do anything <laughs> just holding back the tears. It yeah. was impressive how heartbreaking and inspiring it was at the same time. Yes, it's an example of a concept that's brought up later, uh, sli the sleight of hand concept that Duker talks about later. 
Yeah, I think it. Uh, I, I would just like to comment on the uh, servant thing. It's really something how this is what breaks Lull. He has been soldiering on through pretty incredible horrors before this, but the idea of inducting the servants into the seventh when they probably would have been better. Okay, well, he he thinks they probably would have been better still serving the nobles. Yeah, and then this is this is what gets them. And he has to lie to them or something that he interprets as a lie himself, right? Yeah. Uh, I liked the bit where they were making their way through the destroyed city. Um, this is where uh, the seven holies of the seven cities uh, used to meet and everything is destroyed except for Akarium's device. And Akarium makes his way to the center of town. He's like, it's been, why, why was this left? It's been about 94,000 years since I last stood here. And Mapo furiously trying to do uh, use some slate of hand to misdirect him. Um, Fiddler the helps. revelation, yeah, Fiddler helps. The revelation of what exactly Akarium is and uh, why Mapo is with him um, was good. <sighs> yeah, it's just it's just another I think beautiful scene that's also very sad. That scene is the first time I realized that. Not only does Akarium not know what he does when he goes into these rages, but I don't think he even understands that he's like that he's an ascendant. He's basically a child, an isn't child. That um, I know it comes up a lot, especially when Akarium and Absalor are talking to each other. But it might be good to talk about now is how like they are polar opposites in that uh, Ikarium is a weapon who doesn't remember anything, and through that he gets. You know this feeling of innocence, and I, I, who's going to blame him for the things that he does? Even though he has killed probably millions of people, right? Mm-hmm. And Absalar, uh, she's also in it, and he—he's uh, innocent because he doesn't have these memories, right? Mm-hmm. Absalar, she did these things, and she remembers them, but she—she's also in it because it wasn't her, you know? Yeah. And uh, that. Uh, influences the way that they they see things. It probably would have been better to talk about a later chapter because they have a great conversation about it. But yeah, um, I like how to contrast. You can bring it up again later. I I think there's just um, a theme or like a a choice of storytelling that Erickson has chosen is there are just... He'll usually give more than one character one uh, view of something right so we, we've talked about this whole balance thing but also just like with there's two historians there's two of these characters who have memory loss or not memory loss but are both weapons blah 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 um and i i just i appreciate that a lot i think if if it was done by somebody not as good as erickson it would become too <laughs> repetitive Mm. but he has enough like nuances between them that makes it interesting i think he calls this technique that he uses of uh this this particular technique uh ringing the bell oh okay he mostly talks about it in terms of a scene by scene thing but he sets up something and then he 
repeats it in a, in a certain way, and then he okay. repeats it again. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. This um, is unrelated, but you do, did you guys catch the Wiccans accidentally discovering penicillin? <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah. Um, when the Wiccan horsewife um, is treating List, she takes out a piece of moldy bread and then binds it to his wound. <laughs> <laughs> and they're just like, this might work. <laughs> wow. So the, um, uh, so the, the ringing the bell thing, that's part of how he explains the uh, technique, but the technique itself is called elliptical storytelling. Oh, okay. I had not heard that before. Cool. Yeah, I'm going to look it up as soon as we're done recording. <laughs> I keep um, meaning to, forgetting. Okay, um, I got a bunch of things I want to talk about. I love the Captain of the Ragstopper, and I think he's hilarious. Yes. yes. I, I'm not th I'm not the biggest. Actually, I'll just be honest. I don't really like the Ragstopper parts because okay. uh, I don't really see how it relates to the rest of it. Maybe someone else could explain it to me. But uh, the Captain's great, and he's funny. Um, let's see. I really like the scene. So Captain Solmer... Uh, is wants them to go take another city, and it's a terrible oh, yes. idea. But he's he's very influenced by the nobles because he's a noble himself, and so Colton tries to fire him, and he's like, "You can't fire me because you know I was uh, put there by High Fist." And he's like, "Oh man, I guess we'll have to go see the High Fist. Where's the High Fist again? <laughs> he's an Aran. All right." <laughs> I love and, that. You know, I don't hate Captain Solmar either. Like, I actually mm -hmm. kind of pity him. Yeah. Because he basically has to do this or else his family is screwed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he, he has a lot of pressures. And he, even though, like, I really, really, really don't like the nobles, I understand the pressure like that. Mm -hmm. I uh, I very much agree with you about Kalam's storyline here feeling superfluous. I It just feels like something Kalam can do so he's not, I don't know, bored during his journey. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and... and, and it's a way to like consume his quick bin resources before before the end, and that that's uh, you know, I mean like yeah, I see. Uh, there's some stuff that's set up for later, but yeah, and there's the stuff with like the treasure, but uh, you could have done without it, I think. There are like sequels in a series where you're just like nothing really happens. It's really to just set up like the ending. At least with this sequel, it's confined to just like that storyline, and it's not the whole book. Yeah, and I, I kind of, I kind of hate how it's like set up like there's this grand mystery happening, <laughs> because at first it's like, oh, there's these pirates following us. Why could they be doing this? And it's like, oh, it's obviously that there's either Salkulan or the treasure is up to something. And it's like, oh, it felt more like a like it would be a good story and like a short story, you know. Maybe. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. I feel like what this should have been is two lines at the end of the voyage about it, and then a short story separately published. I would have been okay with uh, a kind of him doing what um, Kvothe did in Wise Man's Fear. It's just like, all right, the story of my ship ship's voyage was boring, but basically <laughs> there was. There was a shipwreck, piracy, a storm, 
and other things, and not in that order. <laughs> Eventually, got to where I was going. Uh, also, in this chapter, I liked um, Benton Roach, Roach's relationship and how Dweaker is constantly surprised that Roach is still alive. And every time Roach gets himself into trouble, which is like all the time, he's saved by the uh, by Bent, <laughs> which obviously is you know resembling the way that the Wiccans are pulling around the nobles. And I, I love how much everybody hates Roach and throwing rocks at him. And... <laughs> that stupid yappy dog. dog. Yeah. Everybody keeps trying to kill him, but they can't. <laughs> I mean, Roach is a Chihuahua, right? Is that uh, is that agreed on by everybody? <laughs> oh yeah, that would make the most sense, I think. I did not have a specific breed of dog in mind, but now I do. <laughs> could a Chihuahua like? Could a Chihuahua get that that level of communion with the cattle dogs? Like, aren't they all kind of? I don't know. Every Chihuahua I've ever met is like this meme. Selfish Bent thing. isn't quite right in the head. <laughs> he was kicked by Name a horse. Bent. Yeah. <laughs> like his whole head is smashed and like caved in. <laughs> yeah. Um I also really liked I was kind of touched by Absalar's uh, reunion with Crocus. So up up until that point I've kind of felt like everything that we saw between Absalar and Crocus was kind of one-sided and Crocus just pining after this girl and she was kind of but uh when they reunited I I actually got a feel that she actually cares for him. And uh, I think Mappa was like, man, you don't know how good you got it, boy. <laughs> she seems to care about him in the in, in the Gardens of the Moon scene. In the first yeah, book. but in this book, at least, it's been Crocus, 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 I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, are we going to move on to quotes now? Okay. You want to take it first, Panda? Sure. You insolent excuse for a crab's anus. <laughs> <laughs> Roll back into your hole, blood-smeared turd. Where does Erickson come up with these things? People used to be a lot more creative with their insults. <laughs> that is very true. Um, I, I I did get the sense that Erickson was channeling some Monty Python here. <laughs> there shall be no cursing um, on this book unless it's from me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, let's see, what else? <laughs> um, this is from by Craig. <laughs> this is from Dewiker, uh, his like internal monologue. The historian shrugged, an entire continent pursues us. We should not have lived this long, and I can take my thoughts no further than that, and am diminished by that truth. All those histories I read, each an intellectual obsession with war. The endless redrawing of maps, heroic charges, and crushing defeats. We're all naught but twists of suffering in a river of pain. Hood's breath, old man. Your words weary even yourself. Why inflict them on others? (laughs) Even he (laughs) is self-aware of how pessimistic he is. But there is still truth in in that and what he thinks, right? Um, How often we think we've seen in history just the redrawing of maps the boundaries you know whether it's africa even in the u.s and all that yeah yeah the most uh pertinent example i can think of right now is like world war one it's like millions of people died for a few hundred feet of land essentially well and national pride 
Yeah, yeah. yeah of course, it's more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get into a discussion of World War One. Uh, no, I've I've studied that enough. Um, then there's one a quote from Dewiker to Fellison, and he says to her, "Cities die. Cities mimic the cycle of every living thing: birth, vigorous youth." maturity, old age, then finally dust and potsherds, which I actually don't know if I'm saying that word right, but I learned the meaning of that word. You're going to see that word a lot. Yeah, Yeah, potsherds. (laughs) Broken pottery, basically. Um, And this this is not like related to the necessarily the content of this book, but there's a, a series called the, I don't remember the series name, but the, the, the first book is called Mortal Engines. Um, mm. And basically, it's like cities are, they can move and they can devour other cities. It's awesome. It's, just, it's a very interesting concept. There was a movie that was made. I think the book was a little better, but I haven't seen the movie. So how do I know? I don't know. <laughs> um, anyway, the concept is really cool. And that's what this quote reminded me of. Anyway. I also liked the uh, beginning of that as well. There was no great unleashing of brutality here, only sadness. And even that was not but a subcurrent. Pain. Yeah. So, um, do you guys think that Dewaker is writing anything down? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, no. Wondered that. They, yeah, I don't think he is, and I think that one of the the quotes that you just said, Panda, is is one of the hints that he's not. Uh, at some point, I don't remember when it might be a chapter we haven't talked about. Somebody mentions how there's not a crate a, a crate yes. full of scrolls going. Like, I don't think he's written down a single thing throughout this entire book, and he they're just like witness this. It must be written down, and he like witnesses all of it, and he's just like thinking about how depressed he is the entire time and not writing any of it. I do really like how Coltane appreciates the value of history and appreciates mm-hmm. it so much as to um, even give Dewiker um, that artifact he receives later. But we can talk about that um, later. Okay. So here, here's a little bit of a speculation. Um, if Dewiker is not writing anything down, but I think the events happening here are important for later, like later in the series. Like, what would that say about Dewiker's like character? What would happen to him? Like, I don't think he would die. I think something else would happen to him, whether it's ascendant or whatever. But that's <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, okay. I have a quote. Um, so Hiboric was wondering why Fellison was going to save him. And uh, this is her thought. She hesitated before answering him, wondering at how he would take this particular truth. Well, that is something. Not long ago, I would not have cared because it meant survival, Hiboric. I offer for Bowden. Uh, could you imagine uh, Fellison saying that kind of thing even a day earlier? <laughs> no. I like how uh, Hiborg is supposed to uh, be her conscience. Conscience, yeah. And he, yeah. He's going to be a terrible conscience. Mm-hmm. He's like Jiminy Cricket, but <laughs> a very old version. Very flawed Jiminy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have some quotes. 
Okay. The city's main street was a dusty mosaic of shattered pottery, red glazed body shirts, gray, black, and brown rims. I will think of this, Fellison said, when I next carelessly break a pot. Hibor grunted. I know of scholars who claim they can map entire extinct cultures through the study of such detritus. Now there's a lifetime excitement, Fellison drawled. I love how Erickson can poke fun at himself. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my second one. <clears throat> and finally, Fellison. Ah, now who is this woman in a child's raiment? Pleasures of the flesh, devoid of pleasure. Selves surrendered one after another. Kindness yearned for behind every cruel word she utters. She believes in nothing. A crucible fired clean, empty. Heboric possesses hands unseen, and what they now grasp is a power and a truth he cannot yet sense. Felicin's hands? Ah, they have grasped and touched. They have been slick, and they have been soiled, and yet have held nothing. Life slips through them like a ghost. Oh, to think of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, wait, this was... Hmm... I think I actually went to the wrong chapter. That was chapter 16, but whatever. Okay. <laughs> I've got one for the current chapter. <laughs> oh. That was a good book, though. Relic wants to go back to fishing. Hee hee, is girl puss saying. But the place you left is not what you return to. Oh, no. From one day to the next. Never mind years. Relic's done work guided by the hands of gods. Yet he dreams of dragging nets with the sun on his face and lines between his toes. He is the heart of the empire. Lassine should take note. Take note. And I thought that was actually pretty wise coming from a singing insane old man. You took note. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I liked that a lot. I also don't believe that any of these people are going to go back to dragging nets. But no, I don't think so. Next chapter. Uh, or, wait. Uh, questions. Um. Oh, that before we move on to questions, there was a quote from there was something that Dweaker said to Fellison. He said, "You know, Fellison, I begin to understand something of the lives of the ascendants to live for hundreds, then thousands of years to witness this fl flowering in all its futility or it all." To witness this flowering in all its feudal glory, ah, uh, is it any wonder that their hearts grow hard and cold? And that just puts into perspective a lot of like how Rake feels, even raced, um, maybe even like the Telanimas as well. Even though you know not not all of those are ascendants, but just how long they've lived and seen things repeat and repeat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was probably Haboric, not Duiker, who said that, right? Uh, maybe. <laughs> I don't think that's possible. <laughs> well, at some uh, point. Yes, anyway, sorry. I think it's very telling how the most active gods we've seen by a pretty large margin have been Shadow Throne Cotillion. And they are also the newest that we know of, at least. Mm, okay. Yes, it's Haboric. Sorry. Okay. Should we move on to questions? Yes. Um, 
What's up with Absalar's father making excuses for Shadow Throne and Cotillion? <laughs> so, like, he's so thankful to Iskarol Pusk and Shadow Throne and Cotillion. He's like, hey, life given for life taken. It was so nice of them to save me and give me an arm. But they literally murdered everyone that they know, kidnapped his daughter, possessed her, and then turned him into a servant. And he's just, he's fine. Ah, but they could have done worse to him. <laughs> Yeah, and they didn't. And they, they gave him his arm back too. Yeah, and if I were in his situation, I would not be nearly as uh, thankful as he is. <sighs> I think it makes him kind of an interesting guy. Yeah. Um, I think I think part of it is also that uh, servant is part of a class that is kind of just used to being trampled upon, and uh, I think too the yeah the people who trampled upon him this time actually. Uh, you know. Gave him something. Yeah, they weren't one hundred percent bad. Do we have any other questions or uh, speculations? Yes. Um, in the ruined city that we've talked about, the monster boys and Fid and Crocus uh, come across. Um, like, my question was: Is that city not related to Mapo? Uh, which one? The the one that Ikarium's like device is still standing it's, in. It's not related to Mapo, um, but it is related to Ikarium. Okay, and uh, Mapo had. Oh, go ahead. Wait, I was going to say uh, Mapo. The same thing happened to Mapo's village, where his village was destroyed, and uh, he was told it was done by Ikarium. Mm -hmm. Was he told? Yeah, that's what the his uh, trail shamanist or something. The nameless makes. one. I don't. I wasn't sure if it was explicitly said. Um. So, yeah, he came to his village destroyed one time, and then the I think the village he adopted later, or maybe there was a nameless one in front of the village. I don't know. I think Mapo is remembering things a bit incorrectly. Um, but the shoulder women. That's their wise wise woman name for. Uh, name for the wise woman they basically told him that ikarium had done it and the nameless ones would give him a task and he should do the task okay because my speculation from last time was that ikarium did destroy mapo's village but i wasn't sure if that was indeed what happened um it's not certain that that's what happened um ikarium later recounts a dream that he had to mapo where it's implied that the nameless ones destroyed the village, but oh. it's unclear. Mapo doesn't know. Ikarium doesn't know, and everyone else is dead. So, yeah, Ikarium's okay. dream. He came upon a destroyed village, and Mapo's mm -hmm. like, "Hey, that's my village." But how you could remember this is from a dream. Okay, when does that happen? A later chapter, like the ones that we've read. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I must have glossed over it. Um. So Mapo had a flashback to the nameless one, and the nameless one did a had a gesture that he, Mapo recognizes as being Jaghut, and she she says to him like mysteries of another led them astray, they bowed to a new master, that is all there is to say, and my question is like so who is this new master? I think they, like is it was it raced? I don't know. 
Uh, I think raced was put down well before that part. Okay. That timeline. Yeah, because I think I think in this in this time there are humans around, and humans weren't around until after the Talani Mass went undead. Okay. Sure, and uh, killed most of the jagged. Okay. You'll learn more about the nameless ones. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Good for the next chapter. All right. Hit it. Chapter 16. The chain of dogs encounters the Thalanda, which escaped the war in a fire with Gessler, Stormy, and Truth changed from the experience. The Thalanda takes the wounded refugees, uh, wounded soldiers towards Aaron, while the refugees are tricked into an ambush by Corbolo Dom. Despite this, the seventh manages to win yet another victory at great cost. Fiddler and co. enter the fragment of a shattered warren where Tremorla resides. Ikarium is determined to let the Azath house take him after Mapo tells him the truth of his past. I'll start. Uh, Gessler and Stormy are awesome. Yep. And everything they say is hilarious. And they're great. <laughs> they're like my favorite C-plot of this novel. Mm. <laughs> I mean, and, uh, Gessler, Gessler getting punched in the face and then promoted. Yes, I'll take that promotion now. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they used to be here. <laughs> demoted so many times. And they were, they're part of the old guard, too, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they, yeah, they, shatter, they shatter Coltane's, uh, Coltane's fist. fist. And they're they're like almost ascended. So what does that mean about Coltane? Yep. Yeah, that whole thing was great. Um, I had a a note here. Um, the imagery of the butterflies. So, mm. the butterflies came up so much. So <laughs> um, much. Yeah. And the the imagery of the drowned butterflies in the river. I it was impressive, but also sad. And I think it's an effective parallel to the deaths of the war. He talks about how like the butterflies um, take fatal plunges and just like carelessly. And um, in, in many cultures, like butterflies are associated with souls, like people's souls. I d I'm just wondering, I don't think this is, sorry. Let me rephrase that. I think this is intentional of Erickson using the butterflies as an analogy to the, like refugees. the, yeah, the refugees and and even the the Wiccans and the the soldiers, um, and also they're crossing this river that's full of dead butterflies. It, I do wonder if it's like a river full of souls and they're crossing the river Styx into mm. like the underworld because the land beyond like where they're going right it's empty the like sormo says something about how he can't feel anything living um and there was like some massive war or battle or whatever that happened so yeah yeah i think that uh that analogy works too when you think about how uh, the butterflies took sormo's mm. soul Yep. And Sormal sacrificed himself for all the, the refugees, many of whom drowned. When Sormal died, oh. I know, yeah, that man. Was, that Sormal was really was tragic. And you just kind of, like, have to immediately move on from that, too. Because, like, oh, this is this is something that's happening. It shouldn't be happening. He should, the crows should be coming to take his soul. But it's not happening like that. And 
well, you can't do anything about it. You have to you have to move on to the next thing. It and, happens like that too. Yeah, and I I think the the analogy works well because also because uh, Dwicker also also mentions that it's a cyclical thing. The butterflies come here every season to do this, and well, humans are uh, killing themselves in cycles as well. Good point. So. Does the fact that it was butterflies taking his soul and not crows mean he's not gone back? Yes, I, I believe so. Because the butterflies will die before they find a wicked stillborn to um, put him in, or what? I think crows and the Wiccans are just kind of linked like that, and mm-hmm. they're, the Wiccans are not linked with butterflies. Then why did the butterflies take his soul at all? I no think crows. that might have been Hood interfering. <laughs> Uh, because he doesn't like being cheated. Uh, but it also might have been the mage that was controlling Butterfly. He might have been influenced by Hood in some way. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's it's unclear as to exactly why that happens. So that means that Sormo or and the, the old warlock, like that's the end of this character. He's dead dead. <laughs> or at the very least, he's dead in the sense that most people are dead. Okay. His soul is in butterflies at the very least. What those butterflies are going to do, who knows? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, this, uh, so the whole thing was caused because Nethpara and the other nobles refused to listen to Coltane. Okay, and... the moment the moment that the messenger came into the camp and was like, M- whatever that guy's name is Hamlet? showing mercy. Yeah. I was like, no, uh-uh. That's not how this is going to go down. They're going to die. <laughs> Are you talking about anyway. Corblo Dom showing mercy? Yeah. Yeah. And what, what, does anyone wish that uh, Dewey finished the job when he had the chance? Yes. <laughs> I'm surprised that anybody stopped him. Yeah, I know. Nethpara. Like, Nethpara has the blood of at least 20,000 people on his hands. The number, I think that's mm-hmm. what's the most heartbreaking. It's just the sheer number of people lost from this one crossing. The, he has the gall to uh, blame Coltane for it. Yeah. yeah. The bit that got me was when the refugees finally broke and they decided they'd had enough of just being slaughtered like animals. And they, yeah, they, they grabbed the pikes by the blades, not caring that it just yeah, it cut them to the bone. They died by the thousands trying to take those rafts and kill the uh, the people that are trying to kill them, and they just couldn't be stopped. And yeah, Dweeker was like trying to have some semblance of order to tell them to go help in the forest, and before he could even like really finish, mm-hmm. they're just like, "Yeah, <laughs> let's go." I was like, "Oh my god, no!" Any other scenes, Jeff? Puss being able to call the hounds. That was cool. <laughs> He was kind of surprised he could do it. <laughs> yes. My my quotes right before that. <laughs> um, the I, I talked about it earlier, but this is where the scene between Absalar and uh, Ikarium talking was great. And any time that I think a few times Mappa overhears a conversation and somebody talking with Ikarium, he's just like, "Oh man, I hope Ikarium doesn't look at me." <laughs> Because I'm going to give myself away. He's such a big softy. Yep. That's one of my favorite tropes in, in 
uh, storytelling is the gentle giant. Mm-hmm. And I think Mappo fits that so well. I'm assuming that there's fanfic out there about Mappo and Ikarium, if anybody knows of it. And it's not <laughs> too... It your way. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can uh, tweet us or something. <laughs> I'm going to search for that now. Oh, no. I'm actually, I'm actually really curious how much fanfic there is of uh, Malazan, because I wouldn't think that the crowd that reads it would engage much in fanfic, but you know, I've been surprised by four before. I haven't tried looking, but I I just expect there to be fanfic about everything. Uh, anything so else? My D and D campaign is fanfic of Malazan. Uh, oh yeah, me too. <laughs> so quotes? Yeah. Uh, who's go first? Yes, I had something. Sure. It's this girl pus being crazy. Shadow throne. Uh, my worthy lord of shadow is thinking. Yes, thinking <laughs> furiously. Such is the fastness of his genius that he can outwit even himself. <laughs> A very Grappa-like line. Or Grappa-like line, rather. I think that kind of gives credence to the idea that uh, Ikarium has a lot of influence on Pust's mind. Maybe not necessarily a, a possession, but like you mean Shadow Throne. Yeah, yes. Shadow Throne. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, if he's in communion with his god very often, then I would be surprised if some of it didn't bleed over. Yeah, he's yeah. a high priest. Yeah. I was gonna say that's assuming he's not just like making it up completely and like is excusing his own like lapses with that, but you know, yeah, he is a high priest. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't have been able to call the Hounds of Shadow if uh, he wasn't a high priest. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, totally. mm-hmm. <sighs> um, my quote is a bit more somber. Actually, it's a lot more somber. But it's also um, Fiddler, Mapo, Akarium, the crew talking about the Azeth house. Tremolor is aware of those who seek it, Iskrel Pus cackled, then ducked at a glare from Crocus. Including us, I take it, Fiddler said. Akarium nodded, aye. And it means to defend itself, the Trell said. If it can, Mapo scratched his jaw. The responses of a, li- of a living entity. And... There's another quote, which is from uh, Dweaker. I think it says internal monologue. It says, there is no escape, another lesson of history. Mortality is a visitor, never gone for long. And I feel like these two kind of go together in that when you're like alive and feeling like in the moment, you feel invincible. But mortality is like, it's going to come. And uh, yeah, it's a visitor never gone for long. Right around um, the time of your first quote, um, I, I liked uh, Mapo under uh, realizing that Crocus is not as mm-hmm. dull as he seems. Yeah, and he's like, "You better call your hounds, or like, what if Ikarium kills kills the Azath?" And mm-hmm. Mapo's like, "Oh my god, he actually like he's he understands what's going on." Right. Again, more crocus growing and becoming Mm -hmm. likable. (laughs) Agreed. I like how it's made clear that 
even the Azath houses, which are, as far as we know, are the most powerful entities in the universe that have shown up at least, um, even they can be killed. And man, it's Malazan. Everything can die. Mm-hmm. The hunter is hunted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have uh, another one with Ikarium. Mm-hmm. I, Ikarium, such are memories in full flood. We are not simple creatures. You dream that with memories will come knowledge, and from knowledge, understanding. But for every answer you find, a thousand new questions arrive, arise. All that we uh, were has led us to where we are, but tells us little of where we're going. Memories are a weight you can never shrug off. And this was Absalar talking to Ikarium, which is uh, on the nose. Yeah, the she, conflict she between yeah, the conflict between remembering what you did and wanting to I don't know. Would you want to remember? I don't. I don't know. Absalar seems say- to think that Ikarium is better off without his memories. Mappo is too, right? Yeah. If I were Mappo, I'd probably do the same thing. Not remembering what you did doesn't erase the fact that you did them. It doesn't erase the the pain or whatever consequences you cause. So at the point, what your question is really getting at is like you know, to whose benefit? And it would be mm. the, the person that did it, and it would be um, uh, I guess it's more of like, if, huh? I thought you were going to go with like insulting to his victims. Yeah, it's it's more of like um, if you did something wrong, is it objectively your responsibility for like remembering what you did, like living with the knowledge that you did it, you know. Ikarium certainly seems to think so. And yeah, I think there's a nobility in that. He searches for these memories, even knowing I think that they will break him if he finds them. Yeah, I don't know. I I I actually don't know my own personal view on this. It's not something that I've necessarily thought that much about. But even just thinking now of like stupid things that I've done. <laughs> Not like I've killed people. <laughs> Making that clear. Um, but just like whether it's like stupid or hurtful things that I've said to people and in normal life, like I don't remember it, but sometimes they'll just surface and mm-hmm. I feel that twinge. Like, ooh, why did I say that? And it's more of a reminder for me to not repeat it. So I don't know. Um, I was just reminded of a uh, 1968 Japanese movie. Uh, there's a Korean man uh, who was sentenced to death uh, because he murdered someone. But right before the murder was supposed to happen, he loses all memory. And so the the movie is a bunch of people trying to get him to remember these things because they can't rightfully hang someone for not remembering their crime ah okay like how how do you kill someone who can't even like you know who has the innocence of uh ignorance and it's it's about uh a lot of ethnic problems between koreans and japanese at the time but it's a really good movie and it's really uh relative uh relates a lot to this it's called death by hanging okay thanks yeah, I it's it's interesting because Absalar at least seems to think that if you don't have memories, then you can't be held responsible, which speaks to uh, the movie you saw. 
Um, that's a really difficult question, I think. I don't think Erickson himself has an answer to it. I think he wants us to think about it. I like it, Carl. Well, he, he uh, achieved his job, at least with me. So at least with <laughs> us. <laughs> Where were we? Quotes. <laughs> okay. I'll share mine. Um, when Absalar is recounting the sets of memories within her, uh, she recounts a little bit of dancers. And there's a final irony, a part of him, in defiance of his need to seek vengeance upon the scene, actually sympathizes. After all, she bowed to what she perceived as a greater need, one of empire, and chose to sacrifice two men she called friends to answer that need. So, uh, this is the this is the book where you start to sympathize with Aline from all sides, even the uh, people she allegedly murdered. Should we move on to questions or uh, speculation? Yeah. Does anybody have any? Because I don't. Why does Coltane keep sending Dweaker on these operations? Like, even Dweaker's uh, like, why am I going to on this like special ops and? My other question is, is this like Erickson's way of showing us more action? Because we have Dweaker's POV. I have two ideas. You guys want to take it? Uh, I think it's hinted at when uh, Coltane gives Dweaker the artifact later on in chapter 19. Uh, and also just kind of throughout the whole book, but definitely that. Uh, that Coltane thinks it's important for the uh, the Empire to have an account for the history to be the history of the of the migration of the chain of dogs to be uh, in the in the in Imperial memory essentially of like I mean of like what actually happens you mean like the the smaller details of it right. like yeah. well yeah okay. the details right I think that Coltane wants to make sure that what has gone on here does not go unwitnessed. Right. So, like, uh, them going after the Zem Warlord, because I guess what, what, what is the impact of that, of Dweaker witnessing that operation versus if he hadn't witnessed it firsthand? Because he's that... able, to, he's able to re, he's able to record and relay, you know, the 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 details of the entire operation, not just you know, kind of a bird's eye view of the situation, but of like everything that they that these people went through to make this happen, and uh, to make him literally go down in the mud with them. Okay, Huron, did you have two points? It's basically what they said. I have okay. I have questions for uh, and and I think Yasna. Uh, so first of all, what do you guys think was up with that war in a fire? Eh, why did it not burn them to death? Wait. Okay, I need a quick. Oh, gilded, oh, like Bowden and, and and Bowden, yeah. Bowden thought well, he would be immune to fire afterwards, but uh, he was not. Okay, so. I had a speculation that I didn't think Stormy was going to die because of the Talana Moss, like specifically giving the sword to Stormy. And I was like, okay, this is significant enough where like Stormy's not going to just poof. Um, in terms of Gessler, 
I'm not 100% sure. Actually, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, because Skessler waved hi to the undead dragon, maybe? <laughs> so what... There was a. They went through a warren of fire. It was this like in between the, uh, the illusionist warren and the, in the real world. This yeah, was, this was the bit where, Bowden and Felicin and Bork and Culp went off the ship, because the well, ship yeah. was on fire and everything around them was fire. Yeah. I do know that, but I'm saying I guess I didn't understand where the fire, came from. Was it like I thought? I thought. I kind of thought that the that the like tear between the between Culp's Warren and the real world was the source of the fire. So they went no. through another the, This is the, the, a warren of fire. Yeah, the, the dragon the dragon was going through the warrens and it took them into that warren. Okay. So how did they get from the warren of fire to the real world then? I don't think we see that. Yeah, I don't know. The the dragon probably came out. Took him with him. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Just, just Next chapter! Um, well, one more thing. One more thing. So we get the notion of a shattered warren in this chapter. Yes. What do you think about that? That's the warren that the Azath house is, like, stopping from... Yeah, that fragment is what the... Yeah. Hmm. So presumably there are other pieces of this warren elsewhere. Oh, great. Okay. Um, the fabric of space-time is torn, and pieces of it are littered everywhere. I have no idea. <laughs> I thought that maybe the rest of the warren was in the Azath house, and there was a piece of it that was like struggling to get out, but it sounds like no, it's the Azeth house is in possession of just a piece. A yeah, shred. it's essentially pinned that piece in place. Mm. I have some memory of uh, memories of ice thoughts about that, but I don't know what I can do with that with what we've read so far. Okay, you know what I just thought of <laughs> Pacific Rim, <laughs> like the openings. It, where the thing, the monsters oh, come out. Oh, yeah, the kaiju. Yeah. <laughs> Great movie. Anyway. Chapter 17. Chapter 17. The Ragstopper fights with some pirates, some double-crossing ensues, and is dealt with. Felicin and her companions arrive at the Oasis, and Felicin prepares to present herself to the followers of the Whirlwind. I have nothing in this chapter. Yeah. <laughs> this is, uh, this is very in between no for me. Yeah. Because this is mostly about Kalam, right? Mm-hmm. I, I liked the banter. Yeah, I don't care about the Kalam stuff. I like the banter between Shaikh and uh, her companions in this chapter. She's got uh, Toblakai and uh, Leoman pinned. Mm -hmm. uh, earlier, mm -hmm. uh, she gives a, I don't know, prophecies or insights into them that were really on the nose. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, which okay, character do you find more interesting? Toblakai or Leoman? Liam. Oblakai. Oh, we got two answers. Why? Uh, because his uh, cynicism and crisis of faith is, is interesting. His conflict, okay. internal conflict. Panda? 
I believe it was Toblakai whose future that Shaikh saw and she was appalled by. Yes. Mm-hmm. Sounds right. Yeah. So That's that intriguing. Why. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I will give my first impression. I was more interested by Toblakai because he's got a cool tattoo on his face and he picked up Callum off his horse. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and he, <laughs> he fought like some white bear thing, like barehanded or something. Yeah, he's kind of yeah. a nymph. He said he was going to do something and he went and did it. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, I will note that he has the souls of the ones he has slain chained to him, okay. which I, it's, it's just a cool concept, you know. We haven't, uh, no, 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 this hasn't happened to anybody else that we know of. It kind of reminds me of Dragnapur, though, right? Like Definitely. how. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means. Yes, yeah, the Karen. legions that you have slaughtered here in. <laughs> <laughs> the legions of ants. Um, Okay, I know we don't like the Kalam storyline as much, but there was one piece that did stand out to me. And that was um, when the fighting actually began on the Ragstopper. I did go from one emotion to another during that scene. So like when the Enkara roll, Enkara roll showed up, I was like, oh crap. But also sad because... Kalam points out, like, this is a rare creature, even it's in its own home habitat. And I'm like, this creature's gonna die because it's it just so happens to be on the quote-unquote wrong side. Right? Um, but then there's the comedic effect that comes in, which is when the first mate asks on behalf of the cook, hey, is that big lizard tasty? <laughs> And I, I, I lost it. It's a delicacy. Yeah. delicacy it's yeah. a delicacy. I did enjoy those parts uh, a lot. I, the, the fight scene was cool. Yeah. I did not have any questions for this chapter. Neither did I. See, I really like Callum stuff, just not on the Ragstopper. Mm. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, definitely. I do care about Callum's story in this book, just not at this part. It's, it just drags out. Chapter 18. Fiddler and company make their way through the maze of Tremolor, vanquishing divers and soul taken along the way with the help of the Hounds of Shadow. Felicent presents herself to the followers of the Whirlwind and gains the favor of Drishna. I can start. So something that Erickson is good at is, at least for me, is making me care about things because a character I care about cares about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, without the attachment to the character, I would not have the same response. And the specific example is Mesrem? Is that how you say his name? The the brown bear soul taken. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, the scene where Mesrem comes to save them or help them in the maze. And uh, Mapo is struggling in Akarium's grip. And he's like, it's an ally. It's a soul taken. Or it's, a, it's an ally. And Iskarl Plus is just like, it's a soul taken. And yeah, Mapo just sagged suddenly. A friend, he whispered. And I'm just like, I wouldn't actually care about this character. Except I care about you, Mapo. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. 
It's yeah. even more somber than that because he says the first to fall this day. That, mm. Yeah, Fiddler thinks that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Mr. M, looking back, he's he's a really good guy, you know. He tries to help people. It, it, you get the sense that he's not in this for power like every other soul taken in Divers is. He just, uh, he just looks out for who he considers his friends. Yeah. Which that explains... No, that doesn't explain it. Because was Mesram the the soul he, taken like Yeah. Yeah. That tried to help with him grilling. Yeah. No. He just oh, sorry. Ba back in when Sormo opened the Warren and there were a bunch of like soul taken endeavors like um fighting and I think that was a demon. Oh, that was a demon. Okay, never mind. I think so. I could be wrong. I think you're right. Never mind. Um, last thing for what stood out is the conch shell is dope. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it was dope. I I'm glad that that dad paid off. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure you didn't touch you? I'm shocked at how many people pronounce that conch uh, since starting this podcast. <laughs> I grew up in Florida and it's conch. Okay. No. Oh, gross. No. No way. Conch all the way. If you look it up online, it's it says the correct one is conch. Words oh. are pronounced how people use them. <laughs> conch. Well, Florida, we say it the right way because there's conchs <laughs> everywhere. Uh, I like how creepy Tremorlor is. Yes. <laughs> yes. Just like a maze of roots that are living and drag things into the. Um, I, I also like how uh, Kimlock is uh, really cool in retrospect. Kimlock's cool. Yeah, he really, yeah, he really could have killed that Malazan army that was outside his city. <laughs> yeah, he could have. Like in terms of power levels in the series, I, it really makes me curious as to where he ranks. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't say anything until I've read the series. The sapper watched Mappo sling his weapon over his shoulder, then gently lifted Karium. The jag hung limply within those masses of arms. The scene was touched with such gentle caring that Fiddler had to look away. I'm just touched by the Monster Boy's uh, relationship. It's beautiful. Yes. They're so cute together. They are. Okay, I am very impressed that... Mapo can carry Ikarium. Because Ikarium is like seven feet tall and half jag hut. And my understanding is that Mapo is like squat but solid, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just like trying to imagine Mapo carrying Ikarium. <laughs> I, I, like the, I like the scene a lot where Mapo has the mace and uh, Miss Ram is there to help them with this in Carl, I think, that is coming after them. And Mapo swings the club and it just folds the entire thing upon itself. Yeah. <laughs> what were you going to say, Yasna? I picture Mapo kind of like an orc from World of Warcraft and uh, uh, Ikarium uh, troll. So even though Ikarium's tall, since he's only like half jag, he's not as like ripped. So Mapo's like a big old orc guy. <laughs> I have similar uh, images. Any more quotes? Yeah. 
All right. I love I love quotes about Snappers being awesome, and I love his girl Puss being insane. And this quote c- combines the two, so I have to have this one. Uh, this girl says, Damn, sappers! Who invented them? Madness! Fiddler grinned. Who invented them? What? Kellenved? Who else? Who ascended to become your god pust? I'd have thought you'd appreciate the irony, high priest. <laughs> sappers definitely channel the energy of Shadow Throne. Just so, are we cool for the last chapter and the best chapter? I, uh, I think I'm. Oh, go ahead. One thing. One thing. Um, initial impressions of those high mages in Shaikh's camp. Or <laughs> uh, then Bidithal, Loric, and the other one. Ones? The other one. There's some uh, schemy, schemy do batters. Yeah. Mm. And Bidithal, uh, notably. Uh, sterilized Shaikh Elder, or the, the old Shaikh, and uh, probably castrated her as well, and raped oh. her. Yeah. So if you're wondering who the real POS of this place is, those three. That one specifically. Yeah. That one specifically. Yeah. The last one seemed the least shady. Yeah. Of the three. So, he seemed uh, he seemed on the level to you. He, well, he seemed like uh, very similar to like Leoman, but a but a mage, like just kind of pragmatic, practical. I don't remember what the other. It was Loric. Mm-hmm. Chapter next. The chain of dogs makes their way through the site of an ancient conflict between Jagat and Talanimas. They are then saved from certain defeat by the Kundril, a desert tribe impressed by the Wiccans. Kalam discovers the ship is being blown off course towards Milaz City. Fiddler and Co. make it to the door of Tremorlor, which refuses them. Such a slam in the face. Slap in the face, that's what it is. Um, as well. If it's okay, I'd like to start with the question for this chapter. Okay. Uh, my question is, uh, why was the end of chapter 9 the best in the <laughs> It wasn't. That's my, uh, yeah. I like it. I I like it. I don't think it's the best point in the book. (laughs) I agree with Ash. This is my second favorite part in the entire series. Oh, wow. It certainly was my favorite part in this chapter, or at least the part that made me like... uh, (laughs) Well, when I'm not reading Malazan about this scene and cry. Oh, interesting. It is, I think, the First, well, okay, it's the second, but it's the first big break the Chain of Dogs gets. Okay, I guess to to specify, it's the part where the, what are they called? The Kundral Burn Tears. Kundral yeah. Burn Tears. Actually, I don't think we know them as the Burn Tears yet, but yeah, the Kundral come. Mm-hmm. The Wiccans! Where... The Wiccans! <laughs> <laughs> I was confused <laughs> as I messaged you guys in the DS. I was like, what? <laughs> um, yes. But uh, I understand I'm, it now. I'm disappointed that nobody else loves it as much as I do. I hope so. Yesna does. Can come and, come and agree with me. <laughs> oh, well, I guess Yesna doesn't doesn't love it as much. Okay. Yes. okay. Why is this the best chapter in the book? Uh, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of oh, things happen. There's something wrong with you, Ashman. Awesome. All right. So this scene's got... <laughs> This scene is this chapter has got the scene with Coltane 
and the sappers and he demotes one <laughs> right yeah the captain it, promotes another it's got yeah. the uh it's got the tragala trade guild and the uh mm. update from darugistan and the mm. implication that uh that lacine and dujek are still working together and like dujek like backing up coltane ah mm -hmm. so good so much in this book or in this chapter were you guys surprised that uh, Dujek wasn't actually outlawed? I have in my notes all the schemes. How clever is Lacine really? And this feels very Ocean's Eleven to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's very smart. Uh, this thing we also get Moby back. Moby comes back. Mm -hmm. And he is apparently super scary. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, I think for this chapter it's kind of a free-for-all. Um, based on just the structure of go it. Go ahead, go ahead. Um, Moby reappears. There's something about Moby. And Moby was Mammoth familiar. I'm wondering if when Race possessed Mammoth, whether he also had something to do with Moby. Like, I don't know if it's possession or whatever. That my thought there. Silence, crickets. <laughs> <laughs> I like the Tregal Trade Guild because they are, I think, the first truly progressive company in Malazan. Um, yeah. Yeah, everyone owns a share of the company, and uh, the workers are truly invested. It's very socialist. <laughs> Surprised when he kept saying, like, their shareholders or something were there. Yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but But it's kind of like... It's it it sort of is socialist, but on the other hand, it's like you know, well, that way we know you'll you'll like defend the cargo to the death, like so. It's like everybody's kind of exploiting themselves, you know. Well, um, everyone goes into the contract with eyes wide open, right? Sure. <laughs> yes. And they only get wider. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like um, how crazy the idea seems because even even now when we don't know much about warrens like the idea of going through warrens to deliver trade goods that's wacky <laughs> and not even just like on genabacus but all over the world mm -hmm. that is they, nuts. they said they went through hood's warren right yep yep <laughs> hood, hood does not it, like it that stay very long <laughs> yeah um I was so the the lead the lead guy who um like talked to Coltane and stuff and delivered the the gift and all of that he reminded me so much of Krupp but they're but they're different characters which surprised me once I got his name but it makes me think that like all Jinnabak and mages are like super insane and like <laughs> I don't think uh, Krupp is a high mage, and I'm pretty sure this guy is. Is Krupp not a high mage? I don't think so. He could do magic, at least. He's a he's a guy who can do magic, and he's smart. But I don't think he's necessarily super powerful. I wouldn't be surprised if he's hiding more. He was powerful enough to pull a Jagga tyrant into his dreams. Is that majory, though? I, I don't think that's majory, yeah. Uh, okay, is well, that... I don't know about majory, that that wouldn't be aspected to a warren um and that's that's what we traditionally think of as when someone is a mage they use warrens or um holds but that comes up 
later. Is that like... We were introduced to holds. (laughs) Yes, we were. Magic here evolves. Older than Warren's. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. He's a mage, this guy's a mage, and they're both nuts, and they're both from Genovacus. That was all (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um. So, yeah, in this chapter, we get a lot of uh, breaks, or... uh, I, I would call them fist-pumping moments. You know, when the trade guild comes and when the control burntiers come save the day. Were you uh, inspired by this? Sort of, but it's also... This This is also the moment where Dwitcher is finally being proven right. Because it's at this point that the wheels are really coming off the chain of dogs. They would have lost the combat if either of these things hadn't happened to save them, neither of which they could have expected. Coltane, like he's he's done an excellent job so far, but it's just not enough. Right. But they were saved by the good graces of third parties on mm-hmm. both accounts. I think that's inspiring. Or convenient. <laughs> yeah. I'm torn. Honestly, I'm torn. That it's solidaristic, and I like that. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Solidarity. Oh, like, okay. <laughs> the tribe that, that wants to compete against Thomas Relo's tribe is showing solidarity with Coltane and the Chain of Dogs. Dujek, as a fist, uh, who wants uh, Lysine to have Coltane at her back, is showing solidarity throughout, you know, with both Lysine and Coltane. So there's a lot of like. Compassion, solidarity, etc. And Coltane I, I, says, screw this to his potential second chance. I'm going to die with my men. In, in both cases, they were inspired by the bravery uh, mm-hmm. and the exploits of the, the army. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's, 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 not, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I agree with you. My... The reason I think I'm not as gung-ho about it is because it came out of almost nowhere. Like, if there had been more of a build-up, some sort of hints um, along the way, I would have bought it more. But because we didn't really get anything throughout the whole, I don't know, was this three-fourths of the book? You mean about the, the trade guild? About the trade guild, about like the how other parts of the world are able to get news of what is happening with Colt Coltane and the refugees, right? Like there was very little, if any, um, parts about how, how well known this thing is, right? I mean, thinking on it, like, yes, a massive group of people moving across a large piece of land, sure, like, there will be talk, but a lot of times it's, like, people who are trying to fight them, and they were running away, so. I think it's easy to underestimate how long it's been. I think it's been, like, it's been at least six months since this whole thing started, so that would give time for interested parties to uh to know this and also i'm i'm fine with this in large part because it doesn't solve the central conflict of the chain of dogs yeah because they're still 
you know, like the the Kundral weren't able to defeat Corvolo Dom's forces. Oh. They just beat them back a, a bit. Um, so those forces are still there. They're still trying their best to kill Coltano's army, but uh, you know, they've just been delayed one step. Yeah, if if these reprieves uh, brought them to safety, I would I would be more on pain. And as bandwagon here, but they they just kind of like you know just give them a little breathing room. boost. Yeah, I guess that that would be one thing is like I really don't know how long it's been. There's very little mention of specific markers of time. You just know like it's day, it's night, it's the next day. But in terms of like total time span, I had no idea. Any other scenes are stood out to anybody else? Um oh there there okay, this would go into quotes. Um so <laughs> Iskar all pussed, and I don't know if yes, not you had marked this part. Um, <laughs> but Iskar was like, muddy the puddle. Oh, yes. Thank his loyalties. Uh, yank his loyalties this way and that. Excellent. Witness the strategy of silence while the intended victims unravel each other in pointless, divisive discourse. Oh, yes, I have learned much from Tremolor. And so assume a like strategy. Silence, a feigned mocking smile, suggesting I know more than I do. And then he goes on and goes on. And then he then says something like, the blathering of secrets, the high priest of shadow uttered in a wholly different voice. So they judge me ineffectual. The other spun to face him. Escrow Puss offered a beatific smile. So, so this is the moment that it's revealed that whether or not Escrow Puss is intentionally blathering his internal monologue, he knows that he's doing it which he's yes. indicated all the way up to this point, including the quote that you just read right before that, that he, that he doesn't know he's doing it. Like, it's like this passive thing that he's not aware of. And he finally indicates, you know, that it's a long time. He knows. He knows that he's doing it. You know, you could debate whether it's intentional or not, but he knows. Does he? I think he knows at I least to some does. extent. <laughs> I'm not at sure. Least, I'm not convinced he knows all of it. I think he thinks he knows. Well, there's something in him that knows because he said the blathering of secrets and so the judgment of ineffectual. And that indicates that some part of him knows. Okay. Even if it's not dominant all the time. It did say in a wholly different voice. So, mm. you know. And I think it's very impressive how he's able to manipulate people who know that he is manipulating them and they try to get out of it <laughs> but he's just too good <laughs> well like you know crocus like let's just kill him and be done with it and then fiddler's like but he's so entertaining <laughs> <laughs> also crocus thinks he could kill Iskrill bust yeah he couldn't kill sure. high priest no <laughs> so i've got a quote uh from from after the Sappers get uh get get their command change after Duker Coltana demotes uh the captain and promotes the sergeant to captaincy. Uh so uh Coltane says, From what I've gathered, you never asked anyone's advice when you were captain. The captain says, Aye, that's a fact. 
nor did you attend any staff briefings. No, sir. And why was that? Menzer shrugged. Captain Bungle spoke. Beauty sleep, sir. That's what he always said. Hood knows the man needs it, Bolt muttered. Coltane raised an eyebrow. And did he sleep, Captain, during those times? Oh, yes, sir. He sleeps when we march, too, sir. Sleeps while walking. I've never seen the like. Snoring away, sir. One foot in front of the other. A bag full of rocks on his back. Rocks. <laughs> For when he breaks his sword, sir, he throws them, and they're in a damned thing he can't hit. Wrong, Menzer growled. That lapdog. <laughs> and it's just like the perfect, uh, the perfect sappers are awesome. And also the lapdog gets referenced. Uh, it's a great chain of dogs moment. Mm-hmm. And I have no more notes for the rest of the episode. That's it. <laughs> and like the insanity of carrying a bag full of rocks. <laughs> <laughs> and falling asleep while you're walking with that. Falling bed. asleep while you're walking. <laughs> yeah. No, I, uh, yeah. This, yeah. The sappers are inspirational. Screw the control burn tier. The, the control. Sappers are where it's at. <laughs> so, um, any other quotes? Yeah, I mean, too. I have more, but they're too—they're uh, too much of a downer. I—I'm I, done <laughs> with being a downer. <laughs> so, uh, it's, this is our last chapter we're covering. Do we have any uh, questions for the whole segment, or up to book to now, or for speculation? Uh, Panda. Do you think the chain of dogs is going to make it? Goodness. Um, I guess no, maybe. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think that some. When you say the chain of dog, you mean just like any of them, or do you mean like interpret it how you will? I I mean I think some of them will. I don't. I think that Dweaker is going to make it uh, for reasons I've said previously in this episode. And I think I think the sappers are not going to make it. You think like, Coltane's going to make it? Um, no. Okay. I think he's I think he's going to be known, but I think he's going to die. Now, whether or not he comes back in a different form, like Erickson just willy, not willy-nilly, but <sighs> he has that option open to him. Um, but I think Coltane is going to die. Do you think that Kalam is going to succeed? I don't think so. Why? Mm, just a feeling? I don't... Well, okay, here's the thing, right? Something that Erickson has proven over and over again is that whatever you think is most likely going to happen is not going to be what happens. Or, like, only you would only be, like, 50% correct. I think Halam will meet Lacine, but I don't think he will actually succeed in killing her. How about uh, the Path of Hands storyline with Absalar uh, and Ikari Mamapo? <laughs> I something that I struggle with in this book is having a grasp on Fiddler's motivation 
for really going into the Azath house. I know, like, yes, it's um, what you might call it. There's the the one in Malaz City, um, but that's not where Lacine is, and that's where they came from. That's not where they came from. Hitler. Okay, wait, so, okay, I think I'm getting confused because Crocus was saying like, oh, I saw, I saw um, an Azath house, but he meant the one in Darugistan. Did. Mm-hmm. The brand right. new one. The brand new one. Um, <laughs> so like, how, huh? I said, he said, also said he met Anna and Rake. And, uh, oh, yeah, like, he oh. did. <laughs> um. But then, how did they know about the one in the last city? Everybody oh, the one in the last city, yeah. It's not a secret. Oh, okay. It's been there. Everybody knows about it. Mm-hmm. They just avoid it. <laughs> yeah, Fiddler okay. thinks about that. I think it was in the reading for the previous episode. It might have been this one. But he thinks to himself about how people just like steer clear of it while they're walking through Malas City. And they don't talk about it. <clears throat> okay. So... We know that Kalam is on his way to Malaz City because of some somebody's warren or whatever is blowing them off course. We know that Fiddler, if they're able to get through Tremolor, is most likely going to also end up in Malaz City. So something is going to happen in Malaz City. That's as far as I got. <laughs> Excellent speculation. Well, you said that that Kalam would meet the Empress and fail to kill her. So do you think that Absalar will end up killing her in this book? Because that was the backup, or potential backup plan that's been discussed. I I feel like Lacine is not going to die by the hands of either Kalam or Absalar. I think there's another twist. I don't know what it is, but I think there's a twist. There may be multiple twists there. That's a fair assumption in a in an Erickson book. <laughs> Great. Um. So, has your enjoyment uh changed in the last seven chapters? Yes. But this book was much slower for me than Gardens was. And I think there are a couple of things, and that's not necessarily because of the book. One is just, you know, with Gardens, there was a lot of energy, and it was new and exciting. And I just went in and, like, plowed through it. And also, the chapters were shorter, um, and there wasn't as much exposition. So with this one, it was definitely a much slower read, and because of the tone, because of the longer chapters. Yeah, I am enjoying it more, but uh, it really depends on how this book ends. Hmm. Uh, I I agree uh, with all of your points, and I think Gardens is a much faster paced book. Yes. And there's a lot more uh, background world building in this one, especially. I still enjoy this more, but uh, I agree with your points. Upon your first reading. Did you already enjoy it more than Gardens? I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> I was just okay. like, oh man, this is cool. This is cool. This is cool. Oh, Chanted Dogs. Yeah, that's awesome. 
Uh, but that was about the extent of it. <laughs> I think okay, the next yeah, episode, yeah. when we talk about the book as a whole, we'll probably get more into the general questions. Yeah. So, should we wrap it up? Yeah. Yeah. All right. That concludes this episode. If you want to join the read-along or discussions we're having, check us out on the Legendarium Discord. You can find the link on thelegendarium.com. Also follow us on Twitter at Green Team Pod. We welcome feedback. Let us know what you're enjoying or not enjoying about these discussions. Shout out to Horizon Brave for starting it all. Thank you to our panelists, Ashiman, Yasunazaboy, and Pathola Pendle. I'm here in fan. Until next time. Bye. See ya. Bye. Coal train. Coal train. Going off the rails on a coal train train. Uh, Yasna and Panda, did you notice uh, the epigraph for book four? Did you notice something about it?